0: We have been working our way through a series of words this January. uh, Words that are part of Christian tradition and theology and words that are often challenging for us. So we have tackled Christ or Messiah and uh, sin. And today we are talking about apocalypse apocalypse itself the word apocalypse means something like uncovering or unveiling and so sometimes people have even used the word apocalypse the same way that we might talk about epiphany it is a thing that is both the epiphany and an epiphany and so you could use apocalypse that way to talk about an unveiling an uncovering, a discovery of something that was hiding under the surface. And we have seen moments of unapocalypse this past year. I thought that might be what I would want to and feel called to talk about today. But where I was led instead was to focus on the apocalypse, and that is in part because one of the uncoverings that we have seen in this past year is the role that apocalyptic thinking has played and is playing in American ideology, and especially white American ideology. If you are around In the 1980s and the 1990s, your vision of the apocalypse was probably shaped by popular evangelical culture at the time, which depicted events like a rapture, where Christians would be taken to heaven and everyone else would suffer seven years of tribulation here on earth. And that sounds particularly familiar for those of you who were alive at that time, because it is the plot line for the Left Behind series of books. But the idea of a rapture was pretty well ingrained into some facets of American thinking before then. Scholars point to it emerging maybe in the early 1900s. And then we saw again last spring this resurgence of interest in apocalyptic thinking as people wondered if the coronavirus was one of the plagues that is connected to some of those prophecies. It's not the only time that people have turned to apocalyptic literature in order to understand what they are going through. People in the Bible turned to their own scriptures to interpret their time, and that can be part of what it means to take our scriptures seriously. The apocalyptic literature is in itself an attempt to make sense of the time that people were living in. And I am stressing that in particular this morning, because one of the greatest dangers in these works has come when people have tried to interpret them and apply them outside of the original context. Apocalyptic prophecies interpreted in this way spurred on the Crusades of the Middle Ages. In modern times, this apocalyptic thinking has been linked to everything from doomsday cults to modern policymaking, to wars, to the attack on the Capitol. And I have a very big soapbox that I will stand on sometime to tell you about the dangers of apocalyptic prophecy and the reckless disregard for our planet. But that is not today. I actually think that these texts have a place, even in our expansive Christian theology. And I want to get to that. But even if I didn't think that, the wide-ranging influence of these ideas are reason enough for us to have a basic understanding of the biblical ideas of apocalypse and what it means for today. So I want to start with a little bit of background work. In the Bible, the books that we talk about as apocalyptic are Daniel in the Older Testament, and Revelation in the Newer Testament. There are other books of the Bible that contain some apocalyptic ideas and language, but those aren't their main concern. It's not the driving plot line of those books. Zechariah has some examples of that. And some of Jesus' teachings are apocalyptic. The parable of the sheep, and the goats, of the two people who are in the field, and one is taken up while the other is still there. That's where some of this comes from. And one of the hallmarks of these apocalyptic books, of Daniel and Revelation in particular, is that they interweave ideas of theology and God's sovereignty with political commentary. They are filled with stories of the kings that will attack and the empires that will rise and then fall. They are cryptic. And they play on this idea of secrecy. Listen to these verses from Daniel 12, and I'm reading 1 through 4. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words a secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Until then, many will be running back and forth and evil will increase. That's characteristic of apocalyptic writing and we can see when we hear just those four verses why it is so seductive and dangerous the layers of symbolism the complexity of interpretation and then there is our distance in time and location from the authors of these books Daniel was probably written something like 600 BC. That's a lot of history and context we do not understand or know. All of that makes them hard to read and easy to fit into whatever modern events you might want to make them fit into. When we think about how to interpret these texts, then we have a couple possibilities. It is possible that the apocalyptic writings were written about the events and the people of their time. Meaning that the writers never even intended for them to be predictions of a time in the future but an interpretation of what is already happening. It is also possible that the writers did intend for those to be prophecy. And in that case, the value of the books I would put out there is that they warn us about what's coming, but again, offer assurance about how to live in hard Times. As prophecy, the value in the books might not just be about pinpointing ourselves on a timeline, but about being reminded that God is working. And I think that this is why Jesus, who used some apocalyptic language of his own, also said not to get too wrapped up in all of this. We have this account in Matthew after Jesus has predicted the fall of the temple. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to him, and they say, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my time saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead you away. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and you will see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. In other words, in that moment, Jesus is saying to his disciples with him and to us these years later, yeah, It's going to be hard to tell the beginning of the end from normal everyday hardships, but you can't go wrong if you keep your eyes on Jesus. And that is where most apocalyptic interpretation does go wrong. Somewhere along the way, people stop seeing the God that we know in Jesus and start seeing a warrior God, hell-bent on destruction. They stop seeing the God of the creation story who looked at our world and called it good. They stop seeing that God who isn't just out there somewhere, but is present in the incarnation and start seeing a God who will destroy this planet in order to make a new one. That isn't the God that we know in Jesus. I said earlier that I do think apocalyptic literature has its place today. And here's what it might be it gives us encouragement that God is working. That somewhere, in some way that we don't understand, even in the hardships that come, God's Spirit is with us. And I think if we were to set these pieces, these books these passages to music they wouldn't be a war song calling us to battle they would be more like a choral anthem inspiring us and helping us stay the course when the forces of destruction are there and present and we know they are In every apocalyptic movement, whatever form it takes, and however big or small it is, one of the things that happens is that people start making themselves the main character. They are either going to bring about the apocalypse, or they are going to save the day in it. And in those texts, the main character is always God. To interpret these faithfully, in whatever way we are going to do that, we have to keep God in the center. The other mistake that I see happening is that We don't take seriously the Bible's own example of people who lived in what they thought was the end times. The Book of Acts, the letters to the early church, those are all written in a time when many followers believed that Jesus's return was imminent many of them thought they might not die before Jesus came again. And this is how they lived, and I'm reading from Acts 2. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and their goods, and they would distribute the proceeds to all. As any had need. Day by day they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill towards all people. And day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I can't deny the violence in some of the apocalyptic texts. I can't deny that these are texts of judgment. They are meant to provoke a sense of urgency and of crisis. They are meant to bring us to a decision point. But the decision that we are asked to make, if we are brave enough to wrestle with these texts, isn't will you fight to destroy the forces of evil, but will you love enough to withstand and transform the forces of destruction? That is the question that Jesus lifts up for us time and time again. And it is the question that when he is asked, how shall we pray? He includes in his answer to the disciples that when you pray, you pray for the reign of God to come on earth. Not as something to be feared, but as something to be yearned for. And so I invite us to say together these words that Jesus taught, praying for that reign of God and thinking too about this vision that Jesus is offering. Let us join together. Our mother creator in heaven, and the glory are yours now and forever, amen. And because those words are rich and beautiful and instructive for what this vision of God looks like, we are going to join together in praying them again another way.